guys, we're jumping into a couple weeks, as uh, Ethan said, we're in a couple weeks in the Psalms. Last week, we looked at Psalm 145, and this week, we're going to just look at the next Psalm over, Psalm 146. And last week, uh, what we kind of said last week was that, that we talked all about corporate worship, about how the Psalms are kind of a playbook for worship. They kind of give us a picture of worship, right? They kind of give us a picture of what worship looks like. And we said this, that worship shapes who we are, that we're shaped by coming together and singing and by worshiping, giving glory to God, that we're shaped by that. We said that we're all shaped by something. We're going to be doing a series starting next week for, for three months, and it's all about how we're shaped and, and how the person of Jesus shapes us as followers of Jesus. But we talked about how worship shapes our perspective of God. That as, as we gather together and as we sing, it gives us a perspective on God's power. It gives us a perspective on his character. That because of life, because of fears, because of busyness, because of distraction, because of painful things that have happened to us, whatever it may be, our perspective of God's heart and his power can kind of be off sometimes, right? That we can kind of make God small. We can make his mercy small. We can make his power small. And God, in a lot of times, can be small. And what we said was that the Psalms kind of give us a picture of it. And worship helps shape our perspective of the, and kind of reinstill the awe and the wonder of God's power right in the middle of life, right in the, the middle of, of the nitty gritty of what's going on in life. And that it helps reorient our minds towards him. And so today we're going to be just flipping a page over, as I said, looking at Psalm 156. And we're just flipping one page. It might be on the same page in your Bible. I'm not sure. We'll put it up on the screen regardless for you. But what we're going to look at, we're going to look at Psalm 146. And what's interesting is that these last five Psalms, these last five Psalms in the book of Psalms are all kind of these very vertical Psalms of praise and of worship. And they're all very, very um, joyous in their tone of how they worship God. And I love the way a guy named Charles Spurgeon kind of said this. And regarding the last five uh, psalms in the book of Psalms, he said, We are now among the hallelujahs. The rest of our journey lies through the delectable mountains. All is praise to the close of this book. The key is high-pitched. The music is upon the high-sounding cymbals. Oh, for a heart full of joyful gratitude that we may run and leap and glorify God, even as these psalms do. So kind of as we get to the end of the book of Psalms, Psalm 146 is the first of these last five, and it's kind of we're ramping up our praise, right? We're kind of making our way back home, and we are celebrating. It's kind of what we see here in these psalms. And so last week, we kind of looked at this corporate picture. When I say corporate, I mean us all together of worship, what it kind of looks like to all be together in the room, worshiping and praising God. And so today, as we look at Psalm 146, though last week's kind of what we dug out of there in this this week's can apply to us on a corporate level. What we kind of want to be looking at is how does this play out? How does worship play out in our day-to-day on kind of a personal level as we walk through life? How does worship show up? How does worship play out? And what does that look like? And so I thought it'd be appropriate for us as we jump into the psalm to kind of read through it together. It's only 10 verses. It's okay. We'll make it. But if you guys have a Bible in front of you, you can get your Bible out. Read with me. There's a Bible in the chair in front of you. You can do it on your phones. We'll also throw it on these beautiful big screens here. But I want to read through this together, and then we'll kind of go back and dig out some of the different stuff that God has in this psalm. Are you guys with me? I'm just always nervous that you're going to fall asleep. You know, church is kind of, we call it secret nap sometimes. But I can see y'all, no secret napping here today. All right, Psalm 146. Verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes or in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day, their plans come to nothing. 
But verse five says, blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down and the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but frustrates the way of the wicked. Verse 10 says, The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. And it ends the same way that it started. Praise the Lord. Before we kind of jump into there, I think there's, there's a lot in there that we're just going to kind of walk through for the next half hour. But there's this, the verse one and two kind of give us a little bit of a, a kind of banner to sit under as we jump into this. Before we kind of get into some of that, I love verse one and two as they talk about noting that the psalmist kind of has this blanket of daily praise, that this is kind of a daily thing, right? That's why we're kind of looking at it in the everyday of our lives. Verse one says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. It's almost like he's saying first things first, right? Like he's kind of just putting it out there that this is all centered on praise. And this whole psalm, this whole sermon today is all under the banner of giving God glory. I think it's important to say that because it's not under the banner of life tips. It's not under the banner of here's how we should live if we want God to like us. It's not out of the banner of any of that kind of stuff. But it's under the banner for the sake of today of praise and glory to God. So everything we talk about is kind of under that with the aim towards that. And so we're going to unpack some of this uh, today. But I think today kind of requires us to take some stock of ourselves and to kind of be honest with ourselves and kind of look at ourselves in the mirror and kind of have a certain level of self-awareness that we may be able to say, what is it that this psalm is kind of showing me? What can I kind of look at in my own life that I might redirect the object of my worship and that I might respond and worship God in my day-to-day as he's called me to do. And so it kind of asks us that we might be a little self-aware and introspective today. And so if you're cool with that, let's do it. If you're not, I won't know the difference because it's all internal anyways. It's self-reflection, so we won't know. But here we go. I want to jump into verses three and four. Verses three and four are kind of where it starts to get just powerful. And I, I don't have a pithy thing to write in your notes, but on my notes from myself, I wrote, faulty princes and rickety hopes. If that's helpful to you, there you go. It's helpful to me. Faulty princes and rickety hopes. Look at verse three and four. Read this together. We'll throw it up on the screen. Do not put your trust in princes or in human beings who cannot save When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day, their plans come to nothing. It's such an interesting thing for the psalmist to say, because it's right in the middle of him praising God. I'm going to praise him every day. I'm going to praise him as long as I live. But at the same time, let's not put our hope in these rickety, rickety things, these these faulty princes and rickety hopes, right? Like he kind of in the same breath is like, let's watch where we're putting our energy at, right? Like it's kind of, there's this self-awareness. It's almost as if he knows himself, right? And, and it's, it's not certain, like we're not for sure, but some people believe that it was David who wrote this psalm, King David, and, and King David was in fact a king, and which is interesting because there's almost this self-awareness here that he's saying as a king, as royalty, he's like, don't put your trust in us. Because just as he writes, we're only humans, right? There's almost this self-awareness that's happening. So as we jump into this, I want us to ask ourselves this question. I've talked about this before, but I think it's an important thing for us to think about and to kind of continue to return to and to continue to ask ourselves. And it's simply this, what slash who are the princes that we're putting our trust in? This Psalm says, don't put your trust in worldly princes and human beings. 
And so just as we walk through this, I want to ask ourselves, what are we putting our trust in? What are we putting our trust in? Because as we pursue this picture of daily worship, I think it's important to us to first acknowledge where are we directing our worship? Where are we directing our trust? Because as we talk about this worship in the day-to-day, it's not that we should worship because we're not worshiping. The question is, what are we worshiping? Right? There was, a, there was a secular author, his name's David Foster Wallace, and he made the, he, I forget what, if he was a speech or a book or what it was, but he said, we all worship something. We only get to pick what it is that we worship. So it's not that, oh, I should start to worship. It's that we're already worshiping. We're already giving honor and glory to something. It's just asking ourselves, what is that thing, right? And I know it might sound a little mystical, but I think this is another way to look at it. What is the thing that absorbs my time and my energy and my thoughts and my anxieties and my complaints and my joy? Like, what is the thing that those things kind of filter to? Because as you think about those things, you might be getting close to the thing that you worship, right? Like that might be something that we worship. And so I just want to take a look at some of these things because I think it's important for us to take a stock of these things. And there's a guy named Tim Keller who says, and we talk, we kind of quote him a lot. He's a smart fella. But he says, he says, what happens is not that, that these things that we worship are all bad things, but what happens is we make a good thing, the most important thing, we make a good thing, the ultimate thing, then our priorities can kind of start to get off a little bit, right? So I, I think it's important also to note that this isn't just a pro-life tip, but all through the Bible, there's this language and it refers to this, it's not a word that we use much today, it sounds a little archaic, but this idea of idolatry. All through the scriptures, we see God cautioning his people against idolatry. And that's simply putting our trust in humanly or worldly people or things, that we are putting them on the throne of our lives and we're sending our hope and joy and trust on those things instead of him. And God cautions it all through the scriptures. For our sake, yes, and we'll look at that, but also for the sake of those in our lives because worship isn't a two-way thing. Worship impacts the community and the people around us, right? And so we're going to jump into this, but I kept asking myself this question. Maybe it's worth asking yourself and writing down. It's a silly question, I think, but it's, it's this, what were you expecting? Like, Aiden, what are you talking about? I think about, as we think about the things that we worship, the things that we put our energy towards, the things that we expect from these humanly princes, these worldly princes, whatever that thing or person may be, what are we expecting from them? Like, what are we expecting to get from them? What, what are we expecting these things to fulfill as we worship them? What are we expecting? I think it's a good question. I, a couple years ago, it was Father's Day, and I was going to get my father a gift for Father's Day. I'm a terrible gift giver, and I'm also very slow to get gifts. I need to get out and make my purchases earlier, but I did not. And so he likes this band Need to Breathe, and I was going to get him a Need to Breathe t-shirt for Father's Day. I'm going to go on with this story. You're going to think I'm trash, but you might have not even got your father son for Father's Day. So I'm going to get him this gift for Father's Day, but it is two days before, and so the only thing I can do is Amazon Prime this gift, because Lord knows if I go on the website, it's going to be like four times the price, and it's going to take like three weeks to get here. So I'm going to go on Amazon Prime and find my dad a nice Father's Day gift, right? So I get on there, and I find a Need to Breathe t-shirt, and <laughs> t-shirt. And what I'm going to do is I, I don't find this shirt on the first page, because the first page is expensive. But if you ever, does anybody else shop on Amazon? Anybody else shop on Amazon? Okay. The rest of you, they're coming to town. Anyways, you, if you shop on Amazon, you know this. You don't buy anything off the second page of Amazon. If it's not one of the first four things, don't buy it. It's trash. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I bought this shirt from the third page of Amazon. And this is a, this is a, I went back through my receipts on Amazon and this was the shirt. This was the shirt. Not the greatest shirt, right? But, you know, I don't think my dad cares that much, you know, 
Older men are just fine with whatever. And so this was the t-shirt I was going to get him. And so it was like $7 on the third page of Amazon. So I get this t-shirt and I get the t-shirt and I had him take a picture of it for me recently. This is what the actual t-shirt looked like. I'm pretty sure that some kid went to Walmart, bought a six pack of t-shirts and a permanent marker and made his own need to breathe t-shirt and sold it on Amazon for $7. And I got the t-shirt and I was ticked. I'm like, this is the worst t-shirt I've ever seen. Why did I get, I gave it a one-star review. That was my first review. I was so angry. But ladies and gentlemen, what was I expecting? I was being a cheapskate on the third page of Amazon buying a knockoff t-shirt. What was I expecting, right? The psalmist is looking here, he's saying, don't put your trust, don't put your trust in worldly princes and worldly things. Because, because they, when their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that day, their plans become nothing. Their plans become a cheap need-to-breathe t-shirt, right? Like, don't put your trust in these things. And the question I want to ask us as we just rifle through a couple of these quick is, what were you expecting? Like as we, as we interact with people in our lives, there's different, I just want to list off some of these things. And these things, again, hear me say this, these aren't bad things necessarily. These aren't necessarily bad things, but when good things become the most important thing in my life, our priorities start to get off and we kind of see what it is we're worshiping, right? For some of us, it's relationships, dream guy, dream girl, our kids, whatever it is. What are we expecting them to do for us, right? Like what are we expecting for them? That we, we can put all of our stock in relationships, that if we could just get this relationship, if our kid could just be this way, if we could just find this relationship, whatever it is, then we'll find our savior, right? We'll finally have joy, we'll finally have validation, we'll finally have comfort, right? Relationships are so important. It's all through the scriptures. We talk about all the time the need for community. But I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, what are we expecting from this person? Because when we put all of our joy, all of our comfort, all of our hope into a human being, Spoiler alert, they're probably going to let us down, right? They're probably going to let us down or they're going to crumble under the weight of our expectations. Our spouse, our kids, whatever it is. But what are we expecting? What do we expect from this person? As we make them our God, as we worship them, right? Well, some, you, I, I talked to a lot of people, especially living in Ohio, I feel like we're all looking forward to something else. Like no one in Ohio is like, you know, it's pretty good right here where we are. Like, we're all like, man, this, this next season, right, of whatever it is. And so sometimes talk to people, it's like, when I get this job, when this next season comes, when I get this check, when we get this house, when I move to Florida, I see you. Whatever it is, right, whatever this future idealistic scenario is, once we get there, once that happens, then I'll have this peace, right? Then I'll be able to rest, then everything will be fine. And then, I'll ha- then life will be the way it's supposed to. And so I just need to, I just can't wait. What we do is we put this idealistic future scenario on the throne of our lives and we worship that, right? Some of y'all, it's retirement. We're like, worship retirement. As soon as this happens, life will be great, right? But on the other side of that is still a broken world that we live in, right? People still die, still got to pay taxes, you still get sick, you still got to drive in traffic and whatever that futuristic ideal scenario is, Right? And the question is, what were you really expecting from it? These things are good things, sure, but what are we expecting it to do? Were we expecting it to give us rest and peace and purpose? I feel like I, I mention this a lot, but I feel like it's important to mention because it's an election year. It's 2020. This whole year is just going to get crazier and crazier, ladies and gentlemen. Stay off Facebook. Abandon all of you who log into Facebook. <laughs> Okay, I thought it was funny. Apparently, 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 I got Facebook. Anyways. 
But, but I think about this with our, with our political culture that we live in, right? Like, don't get mad at me, but just as we're looking, we're looking into, like, what do we expect? Like, it's great that we live in a place where we can vote. Like, we're, that's a privilege that we're thankful for, right? Like, these are important issues that we're talking about as well. It's not like they don't matter. It's important things, right? But the question is, what are we expecting, right? Like, I don't know if there's a clear parallel in this, in this psalm. It says, don't put your trust in worldly princes that can't save. Because when they die, they depart, they return to the earth, and plans come to nothing, right? Like, the, the futility of some of these things, I think, is important for us to grab a hold of, that, to take stock in, to look at what are we expecting from it. Is our safety, is our comfort rooted in whatever, whatever president, politician, party, whatever it is? Like, is that where our trust is rooted? I think it's important for us to look at, right? Is that something that we're putting on a throne that only belongs to God? Because sure, like we, the, these are important things. We get A, B, C, and D, but, but it's going to cost us X, Y, and Z, like whatever it is, right? I think it's just important for us to look at, are we putting that on the throne of our lives? And if it's not something, if it's not a person or a situation, whatever it is out there, sometimes we have to take a look at ourselves. Are we putting ourselves on that throne? Are we putting ourselves in the place of God? I think this happens across everything. But what's interesting is we live in a Western culture. I think it's always interesting to think about the context that we live in, right? Like every culture, time period throughout history was not the same, did not value the same things we do, right? And one thing that is central to our culture that we value is individualism, right? Like you guys with me, like iPhone, Facebook, like face is a personal now, whatever, whatever it is, right? It's our Instagram feed. It's all like centered around the self, right? It's all about individualism. And I just want to ask you what, are you, what are you expecting if you can attain the ultimate individualistic you, if I could just be me? Like whatever that is, sexually, financially, creatively, if you can look the way you want to look, whatever it is, what are you hoping that that individualistic persona that you can grab is going to give you, that you can be? What are you hoping, what are you expecting from it? Because I think at the end of the day, we can get so focused on our individualism and ourselves and our brand and ourselves, but we'll probably still be lonely I don't know if that's going to eternally help us with our identity. Is it going to help us prove ourselves? Is it going to give us inner satisfaction? Maybe, I don't know. But I think we're still going to find ourselves in this world. We're still going to find a longing in our heart, right? And please hear me, not all these things are bad, but just the question I think it's important for me to ask myself and for us to ask ourselves is what are we expecting them to do? Because the psalmist says, these worldly princes cannot save. They can't give us the forgiveness and the grace and the rest and the meaning and the satisfaction, the identity that's offered through Christ. Maybe for a minute, maybe for a minute, but we're talking about eternal things here that come from Christ. I know what some of you may be thinking is, yeah, but Jesus let me down too. Like, sure, maybe these things will fail me, but it feels like Jesus has failed me. If we're just being honest, right? Or maybe the church, or maybe whatever it is. These things have let me down as well. I've had loss, I've had pain, even in the midst of following Jesus. On one hand, I think there's comfort in knowing that God is the God who comes to suffer with us, that comes to meet us where we're at. But on the other hand, and this isn't all of us, but maybe it's some of us, and it's worth asking, was it Jesus that let us down or were the longing of our hearts still these things and we were just hoping Jesus was gonna get us there? Like we really wanted just a peaceful, chill go and no one to bug me. And then life got tough and we thought it was Jesus' fault when really we were just focused on some perfect idealistic future. When really we were, perfect, we were focused on some perfect relationship. Really we were focused on becoming the best me now and we thought Jesus would help us get there and when he didn't, we're like, what the heck, right? Are we put just a simple question today? 
as we look at faulty princes and rickety hopes, are we putting our hope, are we putting our trust in things that fade away, in worldly princes that can't save? Because what I love is that the psalmist continues to go, look at verses five and six. Are you guys with me? Didn't mean to be a downer. Keep on going. That's what you get in the Psalms. Look at what he says. After he asks that question, he says, but blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, and he remains faithful forever. These things are good things. I love my wife. She didn't make the heavens and the earth. I got a little kid. He's cute. He's not faithful forever. Sure, vote. there's important things going on in the world, but they aren't faithful forever. They aren't the creator of the seas and of the earth. That's only God. I love the contrast that he sees. Sure, don't put your hope in worldly princes, but have you seen the God of Jacob, the creator? The contrast is awesome here. The contrast is powerful. We're all shaped by these things we worship day to day. And it begins with us being self-aware. It begins with us acknowledging where is it that we are putting our trust? What is it that we are worshiping? I think it's an important question for us to wrestle with today and to continue to ask ourselves. What is it that we're worshiping? And as we, as we do this, we're reminded of God's character and his power. We, as we read the scriptures, we're reminded that he is the maker, that he is the one true living God. And I think it'd be important for us to look at what he's like. What is it that he values? What is it that's important to him? It's because as we talk about worshiping daily, as we talk about living out, living out worship in our day-to-day lives, what is the character and nature of God? And so for the sake of today, We're just going to simply look at what this psalm offers us. This isn't comprehensive. This isn't everything. But I think it's a big thing that looks like as we worship God in our day-to-day, what that may look like, right? So we'll keep reading. You guys still with me? I know it's lunchtime. But look, you guys chose to came to this service. You must have had a big breakfast. Here we go. All right. Verses 7 through 9. We'll throw this up on the screen. Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9 say this. Right after... Right after the author says, don't put your trust in in princes of this world and in rickety hopes, but put your trust and your faith in the maker of heaven and earth who is forever faithful. And as he paints this big picture of God, he immediately goes into what God is like. Verse seven, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever for God, O Zion, for all generations. And it ends again the same way. Praise the Lord. I know I read a little past there. But as you read this, you see that justice seems to be an important central theme all through the scriptures. Like as I was studying for this week, I was kind of like, man, this is like, this is everywhere. Like we see God's heart for justice all through the scriptures. As God was developing his people in the Old Testament, as he was developing his nation of Israel, it was very important to him that they focused on justice and mercy towards those who were in need, towards the oppressed, towards those who had need, right? It was all through, all through the scriptures. The Psalm, this passage in Psalm 146 where he mentions this is almost exactly echoed in Isaiah 61. And there's just a couple passages I think it's important. We'll throw these up on the screen That is just a sample of God's heart towards those in need. He says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8. Proverbs 31 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And then in Amos, we see a passage. Amos is an interesting book. 
Amos is an Old Testament book. I don't hear a lot of people that are like, my favorite verse comes out of Amos. Like you don't hear a lot about it, but Amos was this time where the Israels, the Israelites were living in plenty. Everything was going great. They thought God was blessing them for how awesome they were. And they thought that he was going to come and have judgment on other nations when really they realized that he was also going to judge them because they were treating certain people in society that they had systematic things that were oppressing them, that they weren't helping the needy. And this is what God says in Amos, away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living, that we see God's heart for justice. And this word for justice that we see through the scriptures is this Hebrew word, mishpat. Mishpat. Can you say that with me? Mishpat, just to know you're awake. And it's used over 200 times throughout the scriptures, this word justice. And it means a couple different things in different passages. Sometimes this word justice is, is kind of what we see a lot and we understand a lot in our society and it's kind of this idea of retributive justice, right? That we bring to justice those who have done wrong, right? Like if someone steals, we want to bring them to justice. If someone murders, we want them brought to justice, right? We want to bring those people to justice. There's this, this retributive justice to stop wrongdoing or to punish an evildoer, right? Like we all understand that. That's why we have different systems set up in our country, right? So that we can, we can have justice. But in God's economy, we see justice communicated in other ways as well. In other ways as well. And that we do justice in this, this restorative sense. That there's retributive justice, but there's also restorative justice. You guys with me? There's this restorative justice to lift up to give humanity or dignity to help those in need. And this may look like giving food to the hungry, helping the oppressed, helping those wrongly imprisoned, to serve those with physical disabilities, to come alongside the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the alien, whatever it may be. Because here's the thing about justice. Justice isn't just catching the bad guy. Like that's not, that's a small picture of justice. But through scripture, this word mishpat gives us a picture of justice as bringing everybody up to the same level because we believe that people are created in the image of God. And so justice helps to restore dignity and honor and value to all people. And so when we have retributive justice, we wanna, we wanna correct wrongdoing because somebody hurt somebody and robbed them of their humanity and their, their dignity and their honor, right? If they were stolen or hurt, whatever that may be. And so we do justice when we stop wrongdoing, but at the same time, we also do justice just as much when we help lift up those who are bowed down, as the Psalm says. So we help those who are oppressed. We help those who are in need. We're, we're leveling the playing field because all are created in the image of God. That's what we see in scripture, in God's economy, is that justice has different prongs to it. And I think it's important mentioning that for us that would say we're followers of Jesus, that justice isn't just like something we should do on Thursday. Like it's not just mere charity, right? But justice is kind of this daily act of worship that overflows from what Christ has done for us. Look at James 2. This is a sobering passage. James 2, 14 through 17 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? That's a good question right? It sounds silly. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. It's a humbling passage, right? I don't think it's a checklist. I don't think it's like, you need to go feed someone. I don't think that's what it is. But I think it's this daily, as we are reminded of what Christ has done for us, that pours out through our lives, and it's a natural fruit of our faith, right? We'll swing back to that in a minute, but I I don't want to miss this. I think there's a powerful order that we see in this psalm, right? If we, if we jump back a couple of verses here, we see in verse six that God is the maker of heaven and earth. 
and of the sea and of everything in them, and he is faithful forever, right? We see this big picture, this vast picture of who God is. And in the very next verse, we see that he uses his power. He uses his greatness on behalf of the weak, on behalf of those in need. Right away, it goes into how he upholds the cause of the oppressed. That he is eternally faithful, that he's the eternal creator, and instantly goes to how he uses his power on behalf of the weak. It's a theme we see in the psalm, and it's a theme we see all through scripture, ultimately culminated in the person of Jesus, that the king of kings, the savior, the world, God became flesh, came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve that he would give his life for ransom, and that he would bow down and wash the feet of people who would betray him and run away when the times got tough, that he came to wash their feet, the king of kings, for people that he knew were weak and would abandon him. This psalm, I said, verses seven through nine, where it talks about God's heart for the oppressed is echoed in Isaiah 61. And I wanna show you guys a passage where Jesus interacts with, with Isaiah 61. Look at this. This is Luke 4, verse 16. Jesus goes to a town in Nazareth where he's brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, one of their church buildings, so to say. As was his custom, he stood up and read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant. And the eyes, everybody is focused on him. Everybody's watching him. He stood up, he read this and everybody's eyes are on him. And he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That God's heart for justice that we see all through the Old Testament was culminated in the person of Jesus, that God showed up as a person and was born to a poor teenage couple in a backwater town and interacted with the spiritually oppressed, all the different people of society he interacted with, right? He identified himself with people that were struggling in society, with people in need. Jesus says, if you did it for these people, you did it for me. This is who Jesus identifies himself with, that he came to bring justice to those in need, to the oppressed. He came to fulfill the heart and the character of God. But that wasn't the only way that he brought justice. He came to bring justice in another way, in both ways. Jesus came to bring justice. I think it's important that we look at this. This is a little bit of a sobering look, but I think it's important. I want to throw back up Psalm 146, 7 through 9. This is an ESV. The Lord sets the prisoner free. Lord opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down. Lord loves the righteous, watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. It's an important question to be like, who's the wicked, <laughs> right? Like, like we can kind of gloss over these passages sometimes, but you're like, who's he talking about, right? It's important to look at that. And I think what's humbling is we look at scriptures, we look at this passage specifically, it's like, who are the wicked? I think they're the ones who don't show justice, who withhold righteousness and mercy, who oppress, who preoccupied with their self and ignore those in need, ultimately those who oppose God and his character and what he cares about, Right? I think is who we might define as wicked. And if we're being honest with ourselves, which we want to do every day, but for the sake of today, we want to do a little extra, is I think at one time or in one way or another, we all can fall into that category, right? If we're honest with ourselves, 
that we all in one way or another have committed these sins, have been oppressive, have been self-centered, have been opposed to the ways of God. Look at Psalm 14. I want to throw this up. I think this is a humbling Psalm. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, but all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Happy New Year's, guys. But it's a sobering look that no one seeks God, right? In the gospel, the reason that we sing about this and talk about this all the time, because the gospel shows us that the one whose heart is for those in need, whose heart is for the oppressed, whose heart is to stand up for those who are bowed down low, that the one who stands up for those, that he uses his power for the sake of the weak, but at the same time, at the same time, we see him dying for the ungodly. Look at what Romans 5, 6 through 8 says. You see, at just the right time, we were still powerless. Christ died for who? For the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, some might possibly dare to die, right? Like someone might give their life for a friend or a hero or someone that's vulnerable, but no one's going to give their life for someone who's a killer. No one wants to give their life for that person, right? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still ungodly, while we were the wicked ones, Christ died for us. As he stretched his arm out on the cross, he came for the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed, but at the same time, he died for the wicked, the maker of heaven and earth, who's forever faithful, who's full of justice, righteousness, and mercy, died for both. Because we all fall into that category. Injustice was served. The punishment of all the sin of the world, of all the oppression, of all the anger, of all the sins that we have committed against our fellow brothers and sisters, whatever may be, the sin of that punishment was paid on the cross of Jesus. That justice was served, but we, by an act of God, were not the ones who absorbed the punishment, but it was Jesus, right? And the only thing the only thing that seems like a reasonable act that would continue to perpetuate a spirit of justice into the world is the wicked realizing that they were wicked and yet the God of justice died in their place. What are we to do now? But to go and extend justice, right? It's what the church is called to do. I think this is what James is talking about. As we acknowledge that we as ones who are wicked, as everybody is according to the Psalms, according to the scriptures, that we have been saved, that justice has been served by an act of God, and he calls us to serve justice in our lives daily. I think that's what a picture of daily worship looks like. And as followers of Jesus, as worshipers, the one true God, maker of heaven and earth, just a simple question today, right? Are we doing the justice that God has called us to partner with him in? Are we, do, are we loving the stranger? Are we standing up for the oppressed, the listening to stories? It's very easy for us to make up in, uh, stories and, and categorize how people are or why they are. But listening to stories is a whole different thing, right? Are we there for the widow and the orphan? I love, this is a simple quote that I think sums up this entire thing. It's by a guy named Tim Mackey who works on a thing called the Bible Project. If you haven't heard of the Bible Project, write it down. They, they make these videos and these different resources that make the Bible come alive and make it, it's very deep theology in cartoon form. It's great. Write it down. This guy's named Tim Mackey and he's a Bible professor and he says this and I think this is just a simple, powerful, potent quote. It says, justice is courageously making other people's problems our own. 
I want to say it again for the people in the back. Courageously making other people's problems our own. But if we're honest, we've got enough problems of our own, right? But I think as we let the truth of the gospels, we let the contrast of us as sinful people who were saved by a just God, partner with him in the work that he's doing. Man, that quote has so much power. Courageously making other people's problems our own. But as we do this, as we worship God day to day, as we, as we serve justice to those in need, to the oppressed, to the vulnerable, whatever it may be, as we do that, I think in the same hand as we look at this psalm, I was almost interested looking at it this week, you're like, yeah, tear down the fake idols in our lives and then serve justice. Like, how do these two go together? And I was struck by this because all through the Old Testament, all through the scriptures, we see God is very adamant about this idea of idolatry. He's very adamant about not having these idols as his people would go into lands. He did not want them worshiping these other gods and these other idols and these other things. Why? Because God has a complex? I don't think that's it. I think he's fine without our worship. Does it affect us as we put ourselves or other things on the throne of our lives? Yeah, it affects us. But it doesn't just affect us. See, God got so worked up about this in the scriptures because he knew that if, if his people turned from him to worship other gods and other idols, that those who were vulnerable in the society would get thrown by the wayside because their worship was centered on them. Their worship was centered on pleasing themselves and their own experience. It wasn't centered on the other. However, the one true God, the God of heaven and earth, whose heart is for justice, as he is worshiped, he makes it a priority that these people are taken care of, that the vulnerable are cared for that the oppressed are lift up. That's why worship isn't just about me. And I'm like, well, you know what? If I want to worship this thing, that's fine. Cause I'm only doing a disfavor to myself. No, God is adamant that the worship doesn't just stop with us, but it affects the people around us. And so I think we begin, as we look at doing justice, as we look at partnering with God and letting his spirit work through us to do the work that he is doing, I think it begins by saying, God, what are these idols in my life that I need to tear down? What are these self-centeredness, materialism, preoccupied with myself and my way of life? Whatever it is, is it getting in the way of me doing the justice that God has called me to? I think that it's, it's humbling as, as, as we kind of close out today that this all, this all is an overflow from a God of justice who took on the penalty. That God, God was never light on sin, Right? God never was like, well, let that one slide on by, deal with it later. Like Jesus paid for our sin. God is a God of justice, both retributive justice, but restorative justice. Because it's all about bringing us to the image of God, bringing ourselves up to the humanity and honor that is due to our brothers and sisters in, in the world and around us. Can we pray together as we close? God, I'm just so thankful that you meet us where we're at, that you dwell as one of us, to fulfill the desires of God, but to relate to us in our lives, in our world. God, I pray that just out of, out of the work of your spirit in our lives, God, we can't, we can't go and do enough, but we can trust that your spirit will work through us to continually turn our eyes and our hearts and reorient our minds towards justice, towards love of others. And Jesus, I pray that as we do that, that you would help us to take down the, the idols in our own lives that distract us, that pull us, that preoccupy us with ourselves and our own lives and our own world and our own preferences. 
and that you would help us to disassemble those things that we might put you in the rightful place, that you might get glory and honor and praise, and that out of an overflow of that, that your justice may flow in rivers, that we may be able to serve in the same way that you have served us, Jesus, if there's anybody here today who is struggling, who is low, who is broken, God, I pray that you would just comfort them, reminding them that you are here for them. God, I pray for those that in the room that may think they've done too much, that have gone too far, that they may see that we are all guilty and you have made justice, that you made justice when you died on the cross, that justice was served when you died in our place, that you offer us life, you offer us forgiveness, you offer us grace, you offer us identity that's rooted in you. And Lord, these things don't change like the princes of this world. So Jesus, I pray that you would just shape our perspective as we just worship you together in this room in the day-to-day life, Jesus, that you would shape our hearts to be more like you. We're thankful that you meet us where we're at. We're thankful for your grace. It's because of Christ alone that we pray. Amen.